we've been looking at the book of Acts. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to turn to Acts chapter 2. I had planned at this stage to be on Acts chapter 3. I'm going to get through the first three verses of Acts chapter 2 today. One of the kids there was talking about swimming, and uh, we always have a bit of a... My wife criticizes me and slags me. She, she's convinced I can't swim. Um, now, after 10 years of marriage, I haven't really shown her anything to prove to the contrary because I have lost my, my swimming trunks from Millington Primary School um, where I had on them a little patch that said 10 metres. And so I can swim 10 metres. You remember you used to do the 5 metres and the 10 metres and 40 or wherever pool and you did a width and then if you could... I, I got my 10 metres badge and I'm very proud of it. But I, I'm not a big fan of, of water. I'm not a big fan of swimming and that's probably why my wife gives me such a hard time. One, because she hasn't submitted to my authority properly as scripture <laughs> teaches. And two... That was a joke. Um, kind of. And... Uh, and, uh, and two, uh, just because she doesn't see me in the water very much. And, uh, and, and I think one of the reasons for this, well, let me, let me preface this. There's, we have lots of events in our lives, lots of things happen in our lives, but every day different events, different circumstances, different things happen. But there are certain things that we look back at and they stand out. Certain events, certain circumstances, certain situations, um, and, and memories and moments and stand out in the thousands of days that we have lived. And sometimes that's because they were good and exciting, maybe a wedding day or, or a birth or something like that. But sometimes it's because they were traumatic. Sometimes it was because they were shocking or difficult or, 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 or surprising. And, and, uh, and, and the reason, part of the reason I don't like water is because of something that happened 30 to 35 years ago when we were on a family holiday in Majorca, otherwise known as Majorca, and uh, I think it was one of our first family holidays, and uh, I, I remember it so clearly, there was a group of us, we, were, we had made friends with other kids, there was about six or seven of us, we were in the swimming pool in the apartment, we were in a big rubber dinghy, we were all sitting around the edge, and the other five or six kids decided to get off the rubber dinghy, which left me on the edge of the rubber dinghy on my own, which meant it flipped over. It capsized in the deep end, and I went underwater. And in those few moments, which felt like ours, I thought I was drowning. I literally thought I was dying. I was. I. I, I couldn't. I, I, the water was coming up my nose. It was in my mouth. I. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't see any way out. And in those moments, I saw my life flash before me. And like I said, it felt like it felt like minutes. It was probably only seconds. But in that moment. I developed a fear of going under the water in the deep end. I, I managed to grab somebody, I managed to grab hold of somebody, and I got out. And nobody was any the wiser about my fear, but from that day onwards, a fear developed within me. And it's funny how that happens, isn't it, with certain things, that, that one incident can cause you fear. On our honeymoon, we were driving from Vegas to the Grand Canyon, and I went to overtake a truck, and the truck driver had fallen asleep at the wheel. And it was a two-lane highway, and he, I could see him gradually coming further and further into my lane. And I'm right, this is a long 40-footer, so I'm in the middle of it, and he's coming closer and closer to me. And in the end, we ended up in the central reservation of the, the motorway. Um, and and I, I honked my horn, and he woke up. And, and for the next year after that, probably a year and a half, Becky, I'll tell you, every time I overtook a lorry, I got very nervous. 
It's funny how something, one incident, can trigger something in your heart and, and, and cause you to have a fear many years later. And, and the, the reason I say that is because today we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit. And, and I think for some of you here, when I talk about the Holy Spirit when I talk about the baptism of the Spirit, when I talk about the gifts of the Spirit, when I talk about the gift of tongues, when I talk about healing, some of you will immediately have that fear. And it will not be fear because of something today. It will be fear of something that happened months, years, even decades ago. Where you were in a meeting, you were at an event, and you saw a misuse and an abuse of spiritual gifts. You saw somebody being manipulated. You saw uh, some, something strange happen. You saw something weird happen. You saw something um, that looked fanatical. You saw something that seemed like emotionalism, fanaticism, manipulation, maybe... Um, it was a, a, a disappointment where you, you thought you were healed and then the next day you weren't. Um, I, I, maybe it was just weirdness. Sometimes Christians are weird. But you know what I want to tell you? The same Christians, if they weren't Christians, they'd still be weird. Uh, that's, that's the truth. You know, sometimes you're in meetings and you're like, Christian. if they were a stamp collector, they'd be weird. Uh, it's not because they're a Christian that makes them weird. Sometimes... Uh, meetings bring stuff out of people. Uh, there are some people who are more susceptible to emotionalism than others. We've all met those, but 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 we've all been in those places, and I have been in those places over the years where I've been. If this is the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure I want this. If this is if this is what the Holy Spirit's ministry is, if this is what God does through His Spirit, I think I'll just stick to the Father, Son, and Holy Bible as my Trinity because I really feel quite uncomfortable with this and and like me with the water it stays with you and as much as you want to you see the rest of that holiday I stayed in the shallow end and I watched everybody play in the deep end and sometimes I think we look at other Christians in the deep end swimming in the deep end of the spirit and as much as we would love to get in there because of our fears because of the event that happened many years before we stay in the shallow end of Christianity we avoid the excesses we stay with what we know what we're comfortable with and what we're familiar with we stay in the shallow end of predictability when God is calling us into so much possibility there is so much power available and yet we feel passive and powerless and I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. I don't want to spend my life swimming in the shallow end when there's a pool of possibility. I, I, I don't want to spend my life living below what God has available for me. And I believe God in Acts chapters 1 and 2 um, shows us what's available and, and and shows us the power that's available for the Christian life. Because honestly, sometimes I feel so powerless in this. And you're like, you're a pastor. and you're... I, I feel so powerless to live the Christian life sometimes. I feel like there's more. Do you ever feel like there's just, there's got, if this is it, there's got to be more. That, that I read the Bible and I look at my life. And that gap between what I read there and my experience, I go, there's got to be more. 
There's a guy called John Wimber who started the vineyard movement. Um, John Wimber, he's, he's going to be with the Lord now, but back, I think it was the 60s or 70s, John had actually been in a band called the Righteous Brothers. He, had, he was a musician in the Righteous Brothers. He had lived a pretty wild, hedonistic lifestyle, a partying lifestyle. And then he encountered Jesus, and he started going to church every Sunday. And every Sunday they would do the, you know, what, you know they would read the Bible, they would sing. And, and eventually, after a few months, John went up to the pastor, and he said, so when do we get to do the stuff? And the pastor said, well, what stuff? He said, well, well, when do we get to do this stuff? He says, well, we did the stuff this morning. We sang songs and we preached. And he said, no, no, the stuff in the Bible. He said, the, the healing and the, 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 the people being set free and, 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 and all that. And, 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 and the pastor said, oh, we don't do that anymore. And he said, well, what do you do? He says, well, we do what we did this morning. And John Wimber's answer was, you mean I gave up drugs for this? And, 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 and he was expressing something, and out of that actually came some longing in his heart for more. John began to, to look at Scripture and go, this is, this is the, the standard. This is the measure, not my experience. And if my experience falls below this, I don't bring the scripture down to my experience. I try to bring my experience up to the level of scripture. And so we have been looking at Acts chapter 1. And we saw in chapter 1 the waiting for the promise. They were waiting for the promise. The disciples have encountered the living risen Jesus He has been resurrected from the dead. He spends 40 days with them. They are dying to get out. They're dying to proclaim that Jesus is alive. They're dying to proclaim the resurrection. And Jesus says, wait, hold up, stop, not yet. You think you're ready, but you're not ready. And he says, why you're not ready is because you haven't got the power. You've got the message, you've got the proclamation, but if you have the proclamation without the power, it's empty words. And so here's why I want you to wait. I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said two things. He says, do not go anywhere but wait. You will receive power. When we saw last week that word for power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You will receive explosive, earth-shattering power. And you will be my witnesses. And that word was martus, from which we get the word martyr. It's a word that's basically saying, you will receive power to be a people who will lay down your lives for me. Christianity is not a cruise ship, it is a battleship. Christianity is not a holiday where we sit around singing, come by, yeah, waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, someone's crying, or you in your small corner and I in mine, all of that. It is where we get out there into the world, bringing, occupying with God's kingdom the places of darkness. We do not need to defeat the devil. The devil has been defeated. We occupy the places out there where there's darkness still in the victory of Christ. Christians sometimes talk about defeating the devil. You cannot defeat the devil. Jesus defeated the devil 2,000 years ago on the cross. We simply apply the victory that he has already won. 
This world, it says, is under the control of the evil one. So when you go into school, when you go into college, when you go into the factory, if you go into anywhere that there is not the presence and power of God, as you walk in, you're bringing Christ with you and you're occupying that place with the presence of Christ. You're changing the atmosphere. That is what we are to wait for. So we're waiting. They were waiting for the promise. They were waiting for the power. And then... The fulfillment of the promise comes. Look at Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest in each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So Jesus is raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. Okay? 40 days he spends with the disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then we have the ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 12. He ascends back to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. He says, don't go anywhere. So the disciples are in a room somewhere. There's 120 of them. It must have been a big room. Probably similar size to this. The 120 of them, they're waiting, they're praying, they're worshipping, they're being obedient. And 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost... The promise is fulfilled. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came. Pentecost is a word that simply means 50th. 50th. Pente, pentagram, pente is a five-shaped thing. Pentecost means 50th. And it was one of the Jewish festivals. The Jews had three big festivals, Passover being one, and Pentecost was the next one. And Pentecost was the festival of the harvest or the first fruits. And this is important. I thought this was interesting. So Pentecost was the festival of the first fruits of the harvest. In other words, as soon as the first fruits were ripe, you celebrated to God. You actually beckoned two loaves of bread with the grain with the wheat that you'd that from the very first fruits that you'd grown and presented them as an offering to God it was a first fruits celebration the first fruits are exactly that it's the first fruits of what is coming ahead it's not the full harvest it's a guarantee that there's more like this to come. Right now you can't see it all, but you can see the little bit that's in front of you. And because you can see a little bit that's in front of you, you can know for sure that the rest is coming. It's like a deposit, a down payment, an engagement ring. It's like God saying, look, I've given you the first fruit so you can be sure the rest is coming. And I felt for some of you, you, you needed to know that this morning. Some of you are seeing first fruits in your lives. Some of you have been praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting and God, is, it feels, hasn't come through. But God is starting to show you the first fruits. In this case, the first fruits of the harvest were this. 3,000 people were saved. We read that later on. On the day of Pentecost, on the day of first fruits, on the day of the harvest, 3,000 people were saved. And for 2,000 years since then, thousands and millions and millions more have been saved. In other words, this was a taste of what was to come. But I believe in our own lives, God has shown us some first fruits. We've been praying for things and we haven't seen the full answer, but maybe we're starting to see a little bit of an answer. 
We've been praying for restoration of a relationship and we haven't seen the full relationship restored, but maybe they texted us last week for the first time in two years. We've been praying for healing and maybe we're not completely healed, but our pain levels have been reduced from a 10 to a 9. We've been praying for for God to break through in some area of our lives and we haven't seen the fulfillment of it yet, but we are seeing the first fruits of it. One bit of provision, one person coming to faith, one healing, one small improvement, one, one day free from pain, one day free from addiction, one day free where you don't give in to sin. You know, I, I, I was thinking about something the other day, and I, it was a weird thing to think about. That you remember back when they used to go gold mining and they used to pan for gold and in the rivers and stuff. If you found one nugget of gold, you didn't go home. If you found one little nugget of gold, you kept mining and panning. Because you knew if you found one nugget, there was a lot more gold there. And I feel like some of us, God has given us the one nugget. And he's saying, keep searching because there's more. Keep panning, keep pressing, keep persevering, keep, keep pushing in in that thing in prayer. I've given you the one little bit and you're disappointed maybe because you're going, it's not the whole picture. Maybe it's one little piece of a jigsaw puzzle. There's a whole lot more to come. I, I really sense for some of you this morning that God has given you a little bit of the... I, I heard a story, there's actually a book called Three Feet from Gold, I think it's called about a guy in the, in the, during the gold rush who, who bought a mine and, 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 and bought all his family invested in him and, and they gave him all he had and he bought all the equipment and he bought a mine because he had, he had found a vein of gold in this mine. And so they dug and they dug and they got a little bit more gold, a little bit more gold, a little bit more gold and they were getting excited and they invested in more machinery and, they got, and then it just stopped. It completely stopped. And they dug and they dug and they couldn't find anything. And in the end, the family all gave up. They were broke. And a guy came along and he saw what was happening and he said to the guy, look, I'll buy your equipment off you. And he gave him $100 at the time. And after he had bought the equipment, he called in an expert, a seismologist, someone who looks at how the earth moves when the, when, when the plates move and all and the seismologist said this he said you know because the earth has moved actually what has happened is that the gold is probably about three feet away and they dug and they found that one of the biggest reserves of gold three feet further into the mine they had stopped digging because they had given up because they weren't seeing the results immediately and yet if they'd only persevered a few more days And I feel like some of us give up just a little bit too soon. There's some of us who are ready to quit on something right now. There are some of us who are ready to give up on some things right now. And God is saying, but look at the nugget. Look at the the, the first fruits. Look at the little bit I've given you because that is just a sign. It's a symbol. It's a deposit that there is so much more to come. Keep mining. Keep pressing through. Let's keep going. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I find that a miracle in itself. That they've been together for 50 days. Jesus has gone away. They've been together for 10 days. And they're still united as a church. 
you know, Peter hasn't gone off and started Peter's church and James and John haven't gone and started the Sons of Thunder church down the road, you know, and Andrew's, you know, fishing church and, and that they're still united in one place. But and unity brings a blessing. Unity bring, and we see this throughout chapters one to four. You can see the verses there that, that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They were one in heart and mind. God blesses unity in his church. God blesses it when a group of people get together who are centered in Jesus Christ, who have one heart and one mind, whose passion and goal is to reach this area with the gospel, to see people come to know Christ, to see his kingdom extended, his will be done, his kingdom come on earth. Jesus loves unity, not uniformity. And there's a difference. You see, uniformity says we all dress the same, we all act the same, we all talk. We've seen churches like that. I've been around Christians like that, that is bland, it's boring, it's beige. That is not the kingdom of God. Uniformity, you becoming like me and me becoming like you is not the goal of the kingdom. Us all becoming like Jesus is the goal of the kingdom. And, and your unique personality and your little quirkiness and your idiosyncrasies and your little bit of weirdness, we need that. We need that because as a body, we are diverse. We are not monolithic. We are a diverse body and we need the unique gifts and talents that you have. There are some of you in here who are passionate about things that I couldn't see far enough. And I'm passionate about things that you couldn't see far enough. And you know what? As the body comes together, as all the parts come together, as the diversity comes together and is unified in the body of Christ, the body functions fully. So please, never feel like that, that because you're into something that nobody else is into unless it's sinful and weird. Please, don't feel like you have to, you know, we, we love diversity. We are not a church that tries to clone people. We are not a church that tries to make you like everyone else. Some people in here like the, the darkness of the worship. Some people can't stand it. That's okay. My job is not to convince you all to like the lights being out during the worship. I have those conversations. I'm just the elephant in the room. (laughs) It's the big loud elephant in the room. You know what? If you like it, that's okay. If you don't like it, that's okay. I'm not going to fall out with you over it. If you say Jesus isn't the son of God, I'll fall out with you over that. Some of you like the music louder, some of you like it quiet. That's okay. I'm not going to fall out with you. Somebody came and had a conversation with me this week and I just said, yeah, I'm not going to fall out. We do things the way we do them. We're trying to, we're working on things. We're working on sound. We're working on visuals and lights and all of that stuff. They're secondary issues. They're personal preferences. They're just your taste. Some of you like rock music. Some of you like pop music. Some of you like R&B. And even a few of you like country. And we'll pray for you afterwards over here. (laughs) Even one or two people like that guy, Nathan Carter. (laughs) But seriously, that's just taste. Somebody who likes rock music doesn't say to somebody who likes country, I can't be friends with you. 
So why is it when somebody who likes loud contemporary worship music and somebody who likes hymns, they say we can't, we can't do church together? That is not what unifies us, church. They are secondary issues. They are preference issues. They are about taste. That is all they are. And you are allowed to have your own opinion on that. Amen. (laughs) But seriously, I think we need to get past this. That if I don't like that, I don't know if I can go to... You know what? If it doesn't suit you, that's okay. Maybe this isn't the place for you. If you you really come in here every week and you hate the worship, find somewhere that you like the worship. It is that simple. Go to, but make sure they teach the Bible and they love Jesus. That is it. But we cannot dilute everything to suit everybody because if you try to be all things to everybody, you end up being nothing to anybody. When I met the leaders of this church in my first meeting, I said, this church is not for everyone. Everyone is welcome in this church, but we are not going to try to appeal to everyone. Because if we try to appeal to everyone, we will appeal to nobody. And so you are allowed to have your opinion. We will listen. We will, we will take it into consideration. But ultimately, we will go a certain direction. The bus is moving. If you want to stay on it, stay on it. If you don't, let it stop and get off somewhere else. I don't mean that rudely, but we cannot stop the bus every time somebody wants a new thing or a new opinion. That that is a church that goes nowhere, and that is a leader who is paralyzed by the people. And if you want a leader paralyzed by the people, I am not your leader. Okay. No, this is in my notes, folks. I feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost right now. But I do. I, I feel passionately about this this morning. That. I, I respect your opinion. If you hate the loud music, I respect that. But if you're going to hate it every week and it's going to affect you worshiping Jesus, find somewhere else you can worship Jesus. If we need to tweak the volume, that's one thing. If you hate the lights being off every week, that's okay. You have to get used to it. <laughs> Just being real with you, folks. Just being real with you. Why is it we come into church and we're fake? We don't have real conversations about real things. We go home and we go, and we talk about it over lunch. And then we come in here and we go, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And then over lunch you're like, I hate that. Let's just be honest, we're diverse. And Jesus loves it. Look at the first 12 disciples. What a bunch of flipping randomers. Like, what a, I would not have picked those guys. Like, who would have picked Peter? Foot and mouth disease. <laughs> like, if there was... Oh, honestly, I'm time's running out. But, like, honestly, I wouldn't have picked me for this job. Some of you are like, I don't know why you did. <laughs> I don't know either. But we're allowed to be diverse, folks. We're allowed to have hard conversations. I have had hard conversations with people in this room. And honestly, it's like family. Sometimes the hard conversations are the only things that bring you closer, actually. Some families operate on a purely superficial level. And it's very sad. And then you see families who go deeper. I want to be a family that goes deeper. That we can disagree 
That our unity isn't based around us all agreeing on the one thing. That us watering it down to the lowest common denominator. Ultimately, we are unified on one person. And his name is Jesus. That is what unifies us. Our unity is in Christ. You know, they were all together in one place. You see, one of the dangers of when you don't like something in church, when you get disillusioned with churches, you start to think, I don't need church anymore. And that is something I'm saying. I was going to say, I keep saying my generation as if I'm 24 still. Like, reverse those two numbers. Um, but, but I see this among younger Christians. is I, I, They've been disappointed with churches, and so they don't need church anymore. Or they can't find a church they like. So it's, 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 it's me, Jesus, and YouTube. Um, and that's their church. Me, Jesus, and Hillsong CD. And I, I, I have sympathy with them because honestly, if I wasn't leading this church, I'm not sure which church I would go to. There's probably only two or three in Northern Ireland that I would really feel like I'd fit into. So I get that. But I also feel like it misses the centrality of the church to the big plan of redemption. That Jesus, this is not a human idea. This is God's idea. Jesus said in Mark, Matthew 16, I will build my church. When we get to the New Testament, every letter was written, not to, a few, very few were written to individuals. They were written to churches. God works through his church. God works through. He has no plan B. In all our dysfunction, in all our failure, in all our faults, in all our messiness, God in his sovereignty has chosen to work through one community of people here on earth to bring his kingdom, and that is you. He has no option B. We are his plan A. We are his people. We are his body. And he even calls us his bride. And I see all these books on Amazon and in Christian bookshops saying, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's like saying, I love you, but I hate your bride. You tell me you love me, but you hate my bride. You've got a problem with me. Saying to Jesus, I love you, but I hate your bride. How can you love Jesus and hate his bride? And you know what to say? You don't need church or you're not going to go to church. It's either... It's arrogant in one sense because it's saying I don't need other people. And it's also saying they don't need me. And we do need you. (laughs) And you need me. And we need each other. We need each other to to rub the rough edges off each other. We need each other. Just Just being around each other encourages us. Sometimes it challenges us. Sometimes there's friction and it rubs the rough edges off us. Sometimes you're around people and you go, I just love the way they love Jesus and I want to be more like them. We need each other. And in an age when some people are saying we don't need church, I want to say to you that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We are his body. We are his bride. There is no other option. And while we are not perfect, while we have many flaws, he thinks we are beautiful. Because those of you who are married men, your wife may be flawed. I'm not talking about mine. All the, <laughs> but you know what? There's, there's maybe the odd imperfection. We'll just not talk about it. But there might be the, a small imperfection, but you still love them because they're your bride. 
in spite of the failures, the flaws and the faults, you still love them because you're your bride. And Jesus loves his bride. Jesus loves his church. In spite of our failures, in spite of our flaws, Jesus loves the church. I'll keep going because I know I'm running out of time here. Suddenly. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting then suddenly. Isn't that sometimes how God does things? You wait and you wait and you wait and then suddenly he moves. You pray and you pray and you pray and it feels like nothing's happening and then suddenly something shifts. You apply for job and apply for job and apply for job and you don't even get a return letter and then you're offered five jobs in a week. That's happened. I know some of you that's happened too. I remember when I finished university, went to America, came back from America. For a month or two I couldn't get a job. I was applying, I was applying and then I got offered three jobs in a week. You wait, you wait, you wait, and then suddenly God moves. It feels like the car's stuck at 10 miles an hour and then the turbo boost kicks in and everything's accelerated. We see that in scripture, don't we? The, the children of Israel wander around the wilderness for 40 years, round and round in circles in the desert, and then three days later they're in the promised land. Sometimes there's a waiting and then there's a suddenly and some of you are experiencing that. Some of you are going to experience that. You've been waiting, you've been waiting, you've been waiting, and then there's going to be a suddenly. There's going to be prayers answered, resources provided, relationships restored, breakthroughs and jobs. It can be one change, one new innovation or idea, and it can change everything. Our God is a God. If you go through the Bible, the word suddenly appears so many times. You know, I was that guy who was single in my 20s. I thought I'd be married by 27. 27 came and went. 28, 29, 30. I thought I'd be married. I thought I'd be married. I thought I was that guy at the weddings, the one put at that table. You know the table with all the other singles? Some of you know what I'm talking about. There's you, a seven-year-old. Um... (laughs) 64-year-old Aunt Gertie who's single and that somebody thought that you and her just might click. Um, uh, and a bunch of other run. I was the guy. One, one summer I, I was at 10 weddings as the single guy. That is not fun. You walk into the Culloden and they go, it's you again. Um, that happened. Uh, and, and, and I was, so I was, and then suddenly, and then suddenly, suddenly, and within four months I was engaged, nine months later I was married. Suddenly, waiting, praying, waiting, praying, waiting, praying, suddenly something shifts. Because you know why? Faithfulness and obedience are really important to God. Faithfulness and obedience are really important to God. And God sees your faithfulness, he sees your obedience, he sees your persistence, he sees your perseverance, he sees that you're praying, you're not giving up, he sees that you're not letting go, he sees that you're not going the way of the world, he sees that you're not going to compromise, and then it suddenly happens, and he moves in your life. Suddenly what? Suddenly there was a sound. There was a sound, a noise. They heard something. They heard something before they saw something. Sometimes we sense it before we see it. 
Sometimes we sense God's doing something in our lives before we see it. We just know in our knower that something's stirring, something's shifting, something's changing. It says there was a sound like a violent wind. It doesn't say there was a wind. I've always thought about this gale force wind blowing through this house. It never says there actually was a wind. There may have been a wind, there may not have been a wind. It just says there was a sound like a wind. The word here actually in the Greek means blast of wind, explosion of wind. It was not just like a a gentle breeze blowing through the place. It was a, 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 a hurricane blast of wind filled this house. I, I was trying to think of something that I could compare it to. and um, I, I'm reluctant to compare it to. But I remember being in my early teens and being at a rat in Edgarstown. And there was... Um, <laughs> I see my, my parents are looking like, uh, like, like, like the negligent parents. Um, but I was, at a, I was with my dad. I was safe. Um, I was, remember being on the 11th night in Edgarstown. There were blast bombs going off. You didn't mistake them. You didn't think, oh, what was that? It was a blast. You couldn't mistake it. I think that's something of the word that is being expressed here. There was a blast. There was a violent when God is saying you've been waiting and you're not going to mistake it when it happens. And for some of you, you've been waiting, and when God comes, you're not going to mistake it. It's going to be sudden, it's going to be dramatic, but it is going to shift everything. There was a sound like a violent wind. Wind in Scripture is a picture of the Spirit. Ezekiel 37 prophesied of the dead bones, and a wind came. Jesus said that the Spirit is like a wind. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes, or where it's going to. And then it says, so there was a sound, and then there was a sight. What seemed to be tongues of fire. Again, not little, literal tongues of fire came down. My hair gel would... But, 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 but it looked like tongues of fire came down in the building. There was a sound. Then there was a sight. Fire in the Old Testament is the presence of God. Remember Moses, the burning bush. Remember how God led his people through the night. A pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. It's a purifying presence of God. So we have the spirit and we have the fire. We have the wind and we have the fire. Remember in Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but one comes after me. Whose sandals I'm not fit to tie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the promise they've been waiting for. And this is what I love. The fire came to rest on four of them. No. What does it say? All of them. All of them. Not just the super spiritual elite. Not just those who had been up at five o'clock having their quiet time that morning. Not just the twelve apostles. Not just those who had theological education who knew their Bibles back to front. Not just the men, not just the adults, not just the rich, not just the elite, not just the intelligent. All of them, without distinction, without discrimination, received a full fullness of the spirit of the living God. This is for all of us. God wants all of us to experience his spirit. I don't know about you, but sometimes I compare myself to other people and I feel like I can understand why the spirit fills them and anoints them, but not me. And God says, I want to give you what I gave them. 
There is no junior Holy Spirit. There is no dilute Holy Spirit. There is no watered-down Holy Spirit. The same power that was available to those first disciples is the same power that is available to each of us. Here we have the birth of the church. The distinguishing mark of the church is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, we live in a country where there are a lot of churches. Every street nearly in this country has a church. But we need to distinguish between what is the the visible and invisible church. You see, there's a visible church, which is a church building. People say, I'm going to church. They mean they're going to a building. That's the church building, but that's not the church. The church are the people of God filled with the Spirit of God. And there are churches, sadly, and it breaks my heart, throughout this land and throughout the world, who are church buildings, but they do not have the presence of the living God in them. It's like a body without breath. It's dead. And we want to be a church that's not just a church because we call ourselves Hope Community Church, because we've got a website that says we are hope.church, but because we are filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. There was a sound like the wind. There was a sight, tongues of fire. And then there was an experience. They were filled. First of all, the house was filled, and then every person was filled. They were submerged. They were drenched in the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. Now, coming up in a Church of Ireland background, I've always thought of baptism as sprinkling, you know. The word baptize in the Greek actually means to fully immerse. I'm not saying we're all going to become Baptists. I'm just saying that if the word, if you go to the original Greek, the word baptize, some of us who were at the the Sunday nights will know this. It means to fully immerse. It it was a word that was used for dyeing clothes, actually, when you were dyeing a material. If you've ever dyed clothes, you don't just dye a bit of it. You have to fully immerse it, fully submerge it. Every single bit of that fabric has to be covered in dye, submerged in the dye. Otherwise, it ends up uh, being being all over the place. And, And the word baptize means to be fully immersed. God just doesn't want to sprinkle his spirit on us. He wants to submerge us in his spirit. He wants to to pour out his spirit. He wants to immerse us in his spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. But I believe that not every Christian is fully immersed in the spirit. The Bible says that you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. But not every Christian, I believe, has surrendered their life completely to the Holy Spirit. and said, See, the difference is this. The difference is between taking a drink of water and jumping in a swimming pool. It's the same liquid, different experience. You drink the water, the water's in you. You jump in the pool, you're in the water. And the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit is a complete surrender and just saying, Jesus... I want you to have everything that I am and everything that I have. It belongs to you. I don't want to just pray a prayer so that I get my ticket to heaven. I don't want fire insurance, but I want to be completely submerged, surrendered, completely filled and baptized with your Holy Spirit. And it's not a one-off event. We keep on being filled because we read that in the book of Acts. They were filled in Acts 2. 
And then in Acts 4, they were filled. And then we read about Paul being filled. But Ephesians 5, 18 says this, Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that word, be filled with the Spirit, means keep on constantly being filled with the Spirit. It's a daily surrender. It's a daily surrender. You know, I, I I get all these church newsletters and stuff with all these ideas for church growth methods and all these and some of them are encouraging, most of them are just depressing because um, you realise all the things you're not doing. Um, but but so much of it is man centred. So much of it is if you can just do this and just this technique or this persuasion or just this social media or this that's how you'll get people into your church. I read one thing last week, and it was fun. It was a true story, that one church has somebody pirouetting from the ceiling on a trapeze or something like this. And that's how another church has, has got cars, that they're, they're raffling cars in the church to try. And like, we do all these gimmicks. We do all these stupid ploys and... And we keep thinking that if we just are clever enough or intelligent enough, we're going to win the world for Christ. You know, the early church had no buildings. They had no money. They had no theological education. They had no New Testament. They had no political power. They had no social influence. They had no religious authority. They were seen as a cult and a sect. They had no social media or technology. Whoa. They had no sound systems or lights. Some of you are like, hallelujah. Uh, You know what they did have? They had the power of God. And they turned the world upside down. If you go to the last slide there, we read this in the book of Acts later on. That's what the Jewish leader said. These men who have turned the world upside down. How did they do it? In the power of the Spirit. We don't need better ideas. We don't need more ingenuity. All that systems and all of that stuff's helpful. But you know what? We just need the presence and power of God. We need to live as a people who are surrendered to God, who are surrendered to his Holy Spirit, and who will do whatever he calls us to do. I want to finish with a story. It's a true story. I've gone over my time a little bit. Sorry about that. But You know, the church... When it's, when it's operating well, there's nothing more beautiful and there's nothing more impactful in the world. And the, church, uh, the world needs the church. It doesn't realize it, but the world needs the church to be all it can be. I have a friend called Trevor Morrow. Some of you might know him. He's a Presbyterian minister, retired now, a former Presbyterian moderator. And he spoke at New Horizon in Coleraine a few years ago and Trevor was talking about a family who had joined his church in Lucan Presbyterian in Dublin and they were from a different religious background than, than their church. And, and so he got talking to them and he said, look, how did you end up here? How did you start coming to our church? And they began to share their story. They told him how the, their husband and the family had been made unemployed the year before. They had a new baby at home. They just bought a new house a few years before and suddenly they found themselves in a very desperate situation. They couldn't pay their mortgage. They didn't even have enough for their bills. They could barely afford to eat. It seemed like they were going to lose their house and they didn't know where they'd end up living. They began to despair. It was taking its toll on their health and their marriage. 
They talked about how next door to them lived a family in which the husband and wife were committed Christians who went to Trevor Morrow's church. They told them how one day the man and woman from next door, the Christian couple, came around and sat in their living room and said they'd been praying the last few days and felt that God was telling them that they were to start living off half their salary and that they were to start every month to give the other half to their neighbours until they could get back on their feet again. And that's what they did for months, every month. This couple would get paid. They'd split their salary in two, 50-50. They would live in one half and they would give their neighbours the other 50% to pay their bills. And the man said this to Trevor Morrow, after seeing them show Jesus, show us Jesus' love like that, how could we not become Christians? That's what the church is like in all its beauty. That's what a fully surrendered life looks like. That's the church I want us to be. A church that is filled with his presence and his power that goes out to proclaim the word of God, but not just to proclaim, but to show and demonstrate the love of God. That is the church that was birthed in the New Testament, and that is the church that I want a Hope Community Church to be.